just want to thank, uh, thank Jackie, thank worship team, you guys. Just did such a, an amazing job this morning, just getting lost in worship. Um, I don't know, this is a little, looks a little sparse in here today. I don't know. So I just want to, you know, this is a great time of the year to uh, invite your friends to, to come to church um, and celebrate. And so a lot of you have coworkers and friends or, you know, people in the community here, even on Beacon Hill, uh, college friends, you know, um, you know, visiting, you know, people out of town visiting, things like that. Just want to w- encourage you all to welcome to come, uh, welcome to come on Sundays to church here. Sound good, right? All right? Yeah, we should, we should be doing that, okay? Awesome. Uh, a couple things just to let you know on your announcements is that there's a parent-child dedication class today, which is part two. We started last week, and then part two will finish up, and that meets in the library at 1130. Uh, after service. And if for some reason we have a couple parents that couldn't make either class, there is a makeup class. And so we're going to do two sessions on one Sunday. So that's next Sunday. So, if, you know, for, for the makeup class, it'll be next week and we do all two sessions, 1130 in the library. Also, I really want to thank you, thank you, thank you guys so much. Um, English ministry, Chinese ministry as well, uh, for the, the, give, the angel tree, the angel tree that we've got for Dearborn. You know, we had like 50 students. I know last year we had 30, and so we had 50. I wasn't sure if we were going to cover them all, but you guys covered them all. Some of you guys did like two, three, four presents for some of the kids. So I just want to thank you, thank you, thank you so much for continuing to look outward um, as we continue to pursue Christ. That's such a good thing. Amen. All right, so let's get into uh, today's message, and we're now in the second week of Advent. And remember, Advent means arrival. It's talking about the coming and expectation of Jesus coming uh, to this world. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the arrival, the coming of Christ from a very unique, a very different perspective, not my perspective, but from another writer named John. And so John wrote the fourth gospel, and uh, John was one of Jesus's original disciples. John, along with his brother named James, James and John, they were the sons of thunder. They were called the sons of thunder because they had such a fiery temperament. And then if you knew their mother, remember if you, that one story where the, Jane, the mother of James and John, they bring, uh, you know, all together to Jesus and, Jesus, and they ask Jesus, Could one of, you know, we want when your kingdom is established, we want one of them to sit on your left and one on your right. So her mother was like very forceful, you know, she really wanted the best for her sons to like, yeah, you need to do this. So that, that kind of tells you where they got uh, that name from, Sons of Thunder. John was also part of Jesus's inner circle. There was the 12, but then Jesus was also a little bit closer to Peter, James, and John. This is the same John who's described as the disciple that Jesus, like, really loved in, in, in a way. Like, there's even, even more so the inner circle. And this was the same John who, at least according to the four Gospels, it seemed like everyone abandoned Jesus at his crucifixion, except for one, John. John seemed to be the only one that was there to witness Jesus' crucifixion. And Mary was there. Do you remember that? And so when Jesus said this to John, he says, this is your mother. Remember that? And so he's basically saying to John, hey, John, I need you to take care of my mother, Mary. And so I think that this is the reason why when it comes to John's interpretation of the advent and arrival of, of Christ, that it's so different. The way he approaches it is so different from the other three synoptic gospels, Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke. And so just if if you'd allow me just to just teach for a moment, just geek out on the Bible a little bit, the way it works is that scholars pretty much agree that Mark was written first. Okay, that was the first. It's the shortest of the gospels. Mark was written first. 
After Mark was written, Matthew and Luke used Mark as the base material for their gospel, but then they took other sayings of Jesus, other written sayings and other verbal sayings, what scholars call the Q, Q documents, okay? It comes from the German QL. It means that basically Matthew and Luke, they use Mark as the base material to write their gospels, but then they also use these what called Q documents, okay? It's just a German word for QL. These other source sayings, other source documents to fill, to, to create their gospels. John was written later, probably between 70 or 90 AD. So John was written much later than the other gospels. And 93% of John's material is original, is different from the other three gospels. And so it's kind of interesting. So when you, for those of you who are familiar with the gospel of John, when you read it, one of the things you notice is that there are extended narratives, there are extended sermons. There are extended dialogues, just deep, going deep diving into uh, theology. It's a very deeply reflective book. It's exactly what you would expect to read if you could sit down with the mother of Jesus. I think it just reflects so well because, because Mary basically became, you know, John was t- taking care of Mary. And Mary, as we know from the Gospels, was incredibly reflective, incredibly thoughtful about her son, about Jesus, and about the Christ. So you have a very different and very interesting Gospel in the way that Mark wrote it out. So unlike Matthew and Luke, which begin the first Christmas around the manger and the barn and baby Jesus... John pulls back the curtain, and he reveals another larger reality taking place. This is beautiful how John begins. If you want to, you can turn to your Bible to John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Again, this is how John begins the Advent, Christmas, the Advent coming of Jesus. He says this, in the, it's beautiful, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now, the first question, especially if you're new to church or you haven't read the Bible much or maybe you're a new Christian, is who is this? Who is he talking about, right? Who is the Word? Ha Lagos. Who is the Word? Now, just let you know that this is John's term for Jesus, that Jesus is the Word. Now, I don't mean to be disrespectful, okay, but John is basically saying that Jesus is like the OG. He's the original OG, okay, because when it came to the Word of God, understanding of the Word of God, the Jews had a very high regard, had the highest regard for the Word of God, for their, for their scriptures and the Old Testament scriptures. This, their scriptures were seen as the revelation coming from God, which should be treated with the utmost respect, should be obeyed. It was just kind of, in a way, seemed like the Word of God. It seemed like it was like God himself. They had such high regard for the Word. In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, the actual word for God, or the name for God, Yahweh, right? Can we all say that together? Let's say Yahweh. Yahweh, all right? Did you know that back in ancient culture times, actually, I'm not sure if they still used to say, they might, but you were not allowed to pronounce the word Yahweh. Even when it was written in the Hebrew scriptures, in the Hebrew Bible, till today, what they do is that when they write out the word Yahweh, because it was, you know, God did, you know, write these, you know, he communicated these things, he communicated his name. When they wrote it down, it was seen as such a holy word 
that not only were you not to allow to pronounce it out loud, when they actually wrote it down in Scripture, they left out the consonants. There were no consonants. So you would just see a word that was Y transliteration, Y-H-W-H. So if you're trying to pronounce it, it'd be like, you know? So if, you, if a little kid was walking around the scrolls or, or someone else, a Gentile or something, if they just happened to read something, they wouldn't be able to say it, you know, because it was holy. So that's how much regard and worship and how they saw that the word was the revelation of God. And so John is equating Jesus with the word. That he was, and because he knew Jesus, that Jesus somehow, because he knew that he was the source of the word of truth, that Jesus himself was the word, the revelation that comes directly from God, that he was the truth. I think just in real practical terms, if you were to meet Jesus or if John were to describe Jesus, he would just say, Jesus is probably the most consistent person I've ever met. His words, his actions, his thoughts, his deeds, unlike anyone else, they all lined up. It's beautiful. So John says now, he says this, in the beginning, Jesus, in the beginning was Jesus. Now, John is doing something very important, and probably you guys really smart have figured it out. He begins his gospel with these words, in the beginning. What other famous book in the Bible begins with the words, in the beginning? Genesis. Good, right? You guys are smart. So he's actually doing this on purpose. He's communicating a message. He's going somewhere with this thing in the beginning. So Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So John, he's connecting the arrival of Jesus in the, the, his present first century, and he's connecting it to Jesus in Genesis chapter 1, which according to the latest science happened about 14 billion years ago. All right? So if we could just, instead of seeing the word and just put Jesus in there, this is what John is literally saying. In the very beginning, like Genesis beginning, was Jesus, that Jesus was there. And Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. This is one of the passages that people go to understand Trinitarian theology. Jesus was with God in the beginning. Now, I know some of you are like super, super smart, <laughs> and some of you are incredibly intelligent, and I know when you read a verse like this, and you read some of the, the birth narratives, virgin birth and, and things like that, you're like, I don't know if I can believe this, right? This just seems a little bit too far-fetched. I mean, who is this John guy, right? He's this first-century writer. He didn't have Google. He didn't have Wikipedia. You know, how is, he wasn't an astronomer. How did he know all this stuff, right? How does he have, he have the audacity to say he knew what were the initial conditions of the universe when X, Y, and Z, and T were all zero, right? Bracket, right, for you engineers, right? How would he know the initial conditions of the universe? Not as only saying he knows the initial conditions of the universe, but he knew what happened before, the preconditions. How does he have the audacity to know what things were like before the Big Bang Theory? Not the TV show, right? But before the universe actually exploded and is continuing to explode, for the last almost 14 billion years. How does John know this? Now, I know it's really hard to believe, okay? But I, what I want you to at least think about, and it's not going to win you over for everything, but at least it might make you stay for the rest of the sermon is this, is that John, just 
imagine this, right? Here's the thought. John knew there was a pre-universe, right? Just at least think about that. John actually knew, John actually assumed that there was a pre-universe. Now, it wasn't just because of special relation John had. It was because the Hebrew text in Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created. In other words, there was a before. The universe didn't always exist. And so John, interestingly, he knew the universe began at a certain point in time, in space, that it wasn't preexistent before science, before the Hubble, before the discovery of cosmic background radiation that basically proved that the origin of the universe started from a point, right, and then blew out from there. John knew without a doubt that there was a beginning, and he says in that beginning, the initial conditions, there was God, and there was Jesus, and the Holy Spirit who created it all. Now, okay, I'm going to move on because John is not here to give us a lesson in astronomy. Verse 3, he says that through him, again, he's talking about Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Verse 4, in him, that's Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And so again, he's sticking us back, even though he's talking about the advent and the coming of Christ, he's also putting this back in Genesis 1. Who, how did God give life to the first Adam, for the first man? God breathed in that life. And he's saying that breath of life, that's, that was all through, that was done through Jesus. Again, he's putting it back there. And then now here's the point. Here's the pivotal point in verse 5. John says this, the light shines in the darkness. See, everything sounds good. And in the Genesis story, everything's good until darkness comes. And so again, John is referring back. He says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What was the darkness in Genesis? It was sin. It was the fall. It was the curse. And he's saying that this happened a long time ago, but the darkness has not overcome the light that God was going to one day restore all things, that he was going to put the curse in reverse. And so John, he's telling us the good news, that the good news of Jesus, the coming of Christ, the good news did not begin in the manger, did not begin in the barn, but that the good news of Jesus began back in Genesis, that humanity's fellowship with God was broken through sin and the fall, but God was going to do a work starting from back then. His original intent was to put the curse in reverse, that God was going to personally reconcile the relationship between himself and his children. In other words, in other words, the Christmas story, God coming in the flesh through Jesus means this, that God's original intent is still intact. God's original intent, why he created the universe and why he created humans, why he created you and I is still intact. What is God's original intent? unhindered, unrestricted, unobstructed fellowship or relationship with us. We know that in the end of Genesis chapter 1 that God created human beings, you and I, as his highest creation, that his desire was to have fellowship with us, to have a relationship with us because he loved us so much, and he wanted us to have relationship with each other. God has this original plan A, this original intent in Genesis 1 before the fall that he created you and I so that we would have and enjoy relationship with one another. And although what happened, we know that happened, that sin 
and darkness that invaded our hearts that we would rebel against God, we would rebel against one another, that God has never given up on his most difficult relationship. Everyone has a difficult relationship in their life, right? Well, God is no different. God has had a very difficult relationship with you and I, and he has never given up on that relationship. God's original intent is well intact. Did any of you guys like have any long-term, any dreams that, that are, you once had, but they're just forgotten now? Maybe you had a plan A vision for something that you were going to accomplish, but it didn't work out. And so what do you do? When plan A doesn't work out, you go to plan B. And the hope and the idea is that if you work on plan B, it'll get you back to plan A, which will get you to accomplish your vision. Well, then plan B doesn't work out, right? It hits a wall. You move to plan C with the intent that plan C will lead you back to plan B, will lead you back to plan A and accomplish that vision. But then plan C falls through, right? And then you're not sure what to do. You're not sure what plan to have. All you know is that you're not in your original plan and all you have is something which you'll just call plan D, even though you're not sure. But your hope is that plan D will lead you back to, back to plan C, which you, will lead you back to plan B, which you, will lead you back to plan A, and then hopefully get you to copy your vision, right? And then it's 20 years later, and now you don't even have a plan, right? It's 20 years later, and, and you forgot what plan A even was, what that awesome dream that you had was. Because it, it's so easy that after time, it's really, to, it's really hard to, to keep dreaming when things just don't work out in your life through weariness. You know, you just kind of stop dreaming. And for some of us, not only do you stop dreaming just about different plans, you just stop dreaming in general. You just start stop dreaming that better things could happen, that better days could come, that better things could happen in your life, in your marriage, in your finances, whatever it might be. Because whenever you face a lot of hindrances, whenever you face a lot of darkness, whenever you face this for a consistent amount of time, sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's easy for all of us just to stop dreaming. Uh, for some of you here, do you have a relationship? Have you ever had a relationship that went like this? Started off as your best friend. Your relationship, you, you started off as such close friends, but something happened. Some sin, some issue, some event, some words drove a wedge in that relationship. It disrupted. And then what did you do? Well, hopefully, hopefully what you tried to do is you tried to figure out how to restore. How can I get that relationship back, right? And so you gave it time. You said sorry. You tried to make it up. You try to talk it out. You try to give him space. You try to talk to her friends. You wrote him emails. You wrote him letters. You texted him. But time and time again, you got no response, no reciprocity for reconciliation, and eventually you just gave up. We all have relationships like that. Isn't it amazing? I mean, I just think it should blow your mind. It blows my mind that through the thousands, tens of thousands of years of human history, our inability, the human race, to have peace, our inability, I mean, we just, we kill one another, our self-centeredness, our lust, our disregard for justice and compassion and just basic human dignity, our rejection of God, that God still wants to heal us, that God still wants to pursue us, that God still wants to restore us, that God still wants a relationship with us so that we can have a relationship with one another. Isn't it amazing that God has not given up on us? 
That's amazing. God's original intent is well intact. And so this is what's so important. I want you all to, to get this. Do you know that God, that he hasn't given up on you? Do you know that God hasn't given up on you? That God's original intent for you is well intact. Because I, I know a lot of people, and I talk to a lot of people, and they say things like, well, I don't think God really loves me anymore. I mean, I've blown it in so many different ways. God doesn't really speak to me anymore. People say, I don't really feel like God is working my life. God, I think, is relatively, he's probably just disappointed in me because I'm not really not that a good Christian. And people tell me, you know, I've taken so many different wrong turns in my life, or I've just ignored God for too long. Why would he want to continue to pursue a relationship with me? Roy, this is the way I feel. I feel like I've just been abandoned. I feel like I've been abandoned by my parents. I feel like I've been abandoned by my friends. And I feel like I've been abandoned by God. I mean, I just don't think he really wants much to do with me. Look, God's original intent, that's what this story's about. God's original intent is well intact. And God's original intent for you, his love for you, his pursuit of you, his joy in you, has not fallen by the wayside. We long, we long, we long to experience that kind of love. Amen? We want that, right? Uh, perhaps you've heard about the couple that's married for 60 years on their anniversary night. 60 years, long time. On their anniversary night, they go to bed, and they turn out the lights, and they lay there for a couple of minutes, and the wife rolls over to the, to the uh, you know, um, her husband. She says, Walter, do you remember what you did 60 years ago tonight? You gave me a hug. And so Walter kind of half-heartedly leans over, gives her a hug. He turns around, tries to go to sleep. After a bit later, Walter says, she says, do you, Walter, do you remember what you did 60 years ago tonight? You gave me a kiss. And so Walter props himself up. And he leans over, half-heartedly gives her a little peck on the cheek. And he lays back down, and he tries to go to sleep. And after a bit, the wife says, Walter, you remember what you did 60 years ago, yet you nibbled on my ear? And Walter, he just sits up, he throws over the covers, he just gets up and stomps off. He's like, where are you going? Where are you going? What's wrong? He says, I'm going to get my teeth. <laughs> God's love, God's intention, God's love, it is his, in the, his intensity and passion for you will never, never wane. It never fails. It never decreases. And the way that God pursued you from the very beginning, Genesis, 14 billion years ago, God's love and intensity to have a relationship with you has not diminished by any degree. Verse 9, the true light, Jesus, again, that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Jesus is the giver of life for a believer. Even if you're not a believer, you know what? God loves you so much. He gave you life. God is the source of your every breath. Verse 10, he, Jesus, was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. This is really important. He, Jesus, came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So here's the great tragic. We had tragedy in Genesis 1. There's another tragedy when God comes back into this world. You would think, right, if you, if you just think, you would think that God coming down and stepping into humanity, God taking on flesh, that we would welcome him, that it would be such an applause, that it's something we've been waiting for. 
And you would think that if God came down in the flesh, that if God came to visit this world, that we would, we would recognize him because he must be awesome. God must be this, this being full of light. He's big, bad. He's not ugly. He's beautiful. He's awesome. You know, we would, we would recognize him and we would welcome him. But John says something really weird happened. Something really tragic happened. Number one, we didn't recognize God when he came. And because we didn't recognize him, we didn't receive him. Well, how come we didn't recognize him? Well, the reason we didn't recognize Jesus is the re same reason we have a hard time still recognizing Jesus today. The reason we couldn't recognize Jesus was because Jesus came in poverty. And we don't associate godly things with poverty. And then even Jesus came from this really backward town called Nazareth. If you remember, one of his disciples snarled like, can any good come from Nazareth? I mean, if there's going to be a leader. The leader's got to come from the big city, from Jerusalem or somewhere else. Because the way that we want leaders, the way that our heart wants to latch on to some leaders, see, Jesus didn't come with wealth. He doesn't come with means. He doesn't come with power, connections, or education. We want a mighty leader with a great background and a great head of hair. We don't want our God to be so humble. We don't want our God to be so vulnerable. We didn't expect God to be so meek. We want our God to be king, to have an outward demonstration of power, but thankfully what we, God knew what we needed was an outward demonstration of love. We couldn't recognize Jesus because he was unlike anything that we could have ever expected God to be. See, we didn't know how loving God was. We didn't know, had no idea how humble God was. We had no idea how forgiving God was. We couldn't recognize him because we didn't know how, how graceful God was, how loving he was. We had no idea what lengths that God of the creator of the universe would come down. It was a scandal to ever think that the God of the universe would take on flesh, would want to come that close to us and to give his life for us on the cross, God would never do that. He wouldn't want to do that. And so since we couldn't recognize Jesus, we also, we didn't receive him. In fact, it gets really bad. <laughs> we killed him. Oops. In Acts chapter 3, it says this, after the crucifixion, okay, after the crucifixion, the disciples, they're standing in front of the religious leaders. There's been a healing. And they're kind of defending themselves. And they're, they're in the midst of religious leaders and a really volatile crowd. And this is what the Apostle Peter says. The Apostle Peter says this in the midst of that. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. In other words, all the Old Testament, all the law, all the prophets, all the word of God, everything, like I said last week, everything in the Old Testament points to the coming of the Messiah. And that was Jesus. The Messiah from Isaiah 9, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, that, all that prophecy, that was Jesus. And you handed him over, he says, to be killed. Oops. You disowned him before Pilate. You, though he had decided to let him go, then verse 14, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer, if you remember Barabbas, that whole situation, you asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed, ouch. He says, you killed the author of life. 
You killed that which gave life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses. We saw it. We experienced it. We are witnesses of this. And so a question, too, that a lot of us have when it comes to Jesus not only coming, but okay, so Jesus came, but why did he, why did he have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? Well, Jesus had to die because Jesus is the author of life. He is the author of life. See, only the author of life could save your life from sin and death. I mean, there's other people in your life who love you, like your parents, and they would willingly sacrifice their life for you. But they're not, their life isn't life. They're not, they're not the author of life. They can't do anything to pay for your own sin because they themselves are sinners. And so Jesus couldn't just have come down. Imagine if Jesus came down and, you know, he came down on a sermon, you know, on the mount, and this was his famous Sermon on the Mount. He says, everyone come and gather around, and I'm going to give you the Sermon on the Mount that's going to change your life. And he starts off with this. Hey, guys, it's all good. <laughs> you know, it's all good. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. And I know, you know, this, you know, he, you know, he did some things and he stole some money from you. But look, I forgive him. So you need to forgive him, too. It's all good. And you over there, I know that this person over there, I know that he killed your distant relative over there. But like, he's forgiven. It's all good. You know, and you over there, you know, your wife is, you know, fooling around with this other dude. But look, it's forgiven. Like, it's all good. So I'm good. You're good. We're all forgiven. See you later, right? I mean, what if he did that? Why can't he just forgive everyone? Why can't he just do that? Well, first of all, it'd be ridiculous if he did, and no one would believe him, right? Some guy just comes and says, you're all forgiven, right? First of all, it just doesn't even make sense. Why would God even do that? Because we've been talking about this in, in Romans for the last, you know, couple of weeks, and so if you haven't, uh, you know, heard that series so far, just go back and, and, and read it. But we just know that when someone sins against us, right? That there's justice. There's, there's like something that needs to be paid. There's something that needs to be atoned for, right? And so when someone sins against you, and there's some pretty bad sins out there called murder, and then when Jesus talked about murder, he said this. He said, well, let me just reinterpret that a little bit for you. When you even hate someone, that's like murder. When you wish someone didn't even exist, that's really bad. I don't, Jesus, I don't even think like that. You know, and so when someone commits a crime, someone's got to pay for it. When someone does something against you, you always feel like, hey, man, you owe me. Like, there's a debt, right? Someone's got to make restitution for wrong. Someone's got to take responsibility for it, to own up to it, to atone for it. Because if not, then there is no justice. God is a God of justice and righteousness and demands justice. He doesn't want us to go around sinning against each other right? And here's the one thing that, 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 that might be helpful for you to know, is that when, when you sin against someone, do you know you're actually sinning against God? I mean, I know, I know you're sinning against the other person, but when you sin, when you hurt someone, you're actually hurting God as well. Why? Because that is God's creation. That's God's breath of life in him or her. And God takes, you know, our offenses against his children, against creation really seriously. And so the same thing, when someone sins against you, when someone does something bad against you, hurts you in some way, they're actually sinning against God. Why? Because you are God's creation as well. And God takes personal, personal offense when someone is trying and seeking to hurt you. And so God, he doesn't come down. Jesus didn't come down and just say, hey, you guys, everything's good. You're all forgiven. Because if he did that, not only would no one believe him, but there's no justice in a God like that. 
Sin demands payment. But God, at the same time, God is so gracious. He's so good. God is so good that God himself says, you know what? None of you, none of us could ever provide the penalty, the payment for the sin. So the author of life, the author of your life, is going to take the payment and the penalty of sin on himself. God's going to make the payment. God's going to make the restitution. God's going to take the responsibility. God is going to own it. God's going to atone it so that there would be justice for everyone and that there would also be mercy and love for everyone. And so only Jesus, the word of God, the author of life, could pay the penalty for your life, which was his death on the cross. He did it because he loved you, that you might respond to his love because he knows, he knows, he knows. You can't just tell people that you love them. You've got to show it. You've got to demonstrate it. And that's what he did for us on the cross. You know, really interesting, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Friday, on Friday nights, Friday nights are me and my son time, me and Mason. Mason's in fifth grade. A lot of you guys, you guys know him. He's a great guy. And Friday nights, I mean, we do stuff, but Friday nights are our nights to hang out together. And typically, he kind of sets the agenda up, like where we're going to go, where we're going to eat, what we're going to do, and things like that. And this was just a couple weeks ago. We were driving, and um, he's in the back seat of the car, and he says this. He says, Dad, you know what? I feel really bad for you. I was like, hmm, okay. So I was like, why? Why, why, do, you feel really, why do you feel bad for me? Because you're a pastor. No, I was kidding. He didn't say that. That was just something I was thought he might say. But no, he said, the reason I feel bad for you, this, this is Mason talking, it's just a little normal, these exact words. He says, the reason I feel bad for you is because when we do stuff, we're always doing things that like I want to do. And I don't think those things that I want to do are the things that you enjoy. These were exact words. This is a fifth grader. I'm like, what? Right? <laughs> Jesus, thank you. Right? Jesus, thank you. Oh, my gosh. And so in this particular moment, because that was incredibly insightful, I just thought, this is a God moment. And Holy Spirit, please give me the words of how do I respond to this? Because I want to somehow, I just knew, it was like, whoa, this is like a teaching moment. This is like he's, he's learning something. He's figuring something out. And so one voice, you know, one voice here was saying, okay, you could do this. I mean, just, just tell him that, uh, just tell him that, you know, that you love it. Just tell him you love going to Chuck E. Cheese. Or, you know, just tell him that you love, that you, love uh, you know, playing basketball and letting him win, you know. And gosh, sometimes I just want to slam that basketball down. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, just tell him that, yeah, you love watching kiddie movies, you know, rated G movies. Or, you know, tell him that you, you love to um, eat craft mac and cheese, you know, uh, every Friday. Actually, that's not that bad, right? But, yeah, just tell him that, you, that no, that, that you just love him, that you just do all these things because you just love him, you just love him, you just love him, and it's not, it's not a big deal for you, right? That was one side saying, just kind of boost up his, you know, it's fine. But the other side was saying, this is really, like, tell him the truth. Tell him the truth about love. And so I said, Mason, you're right. I hate hanging out with you. And it's just, no, just kidding. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. But I said this because I wanted him to know. Because this was one of those, definitely one, one, of those, one of those teaching moments, right? Mason, I just said, you're right. Some of these things I don't actually really enjoy doing. But I know you enjoy doing them. 
And so because you enjoy doing it, because that makes you happy, it kind of makes me happy too. But that's why I do it. But you're right. These are things I would not normally do. I normally do not go Chuck E. Cheese by myself. Okay, that'd be really creepy, all right? Just be really creepy. Go man there, just like, just stay away from that dude, okay? But there's definitely things I wouldn't do because I don't enjoy them. And then he asked this. He asked, he said, he said, is that what dads are supposed to do for their kids? Oh, my God. I said, only good dads do that. <laughs> only good dads do that. When Jesus, when he died on the cross, he's your heavenly father, right? Did Jesus want to die on the cross for us? Not really. But as the writer of Hebrews said this about Jesus, he says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorning at shame. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus willingly died, and then it's so mysterious the way that the writer Hebrews, there was a joy in that. It's just a mystery. I don't know how you have that. He joyfully died, which I think only can just mysteriously, it reflects the depth of Jesus' love because love must be demonstrated. Love must be shown before it's known. So that in verse 12, what would happen is this, yet to all who did receive him, who would receive Jesus, to those who believed in Jesus' name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, we're all children of God, believer and non-believer life. We're all children of God. But John is saying there's, there's another level. There's a way that you come into relationship with God. There are people that were all children of God but you're not, there's some people who are not in God's family. And the invitation of Christmas, the purpose of John's writing, the purpose of God's plan A is for you and I to believe in the name of Jesus and to be restored into God's family, into his immediate family. Verse 13 Children born not of natural descent. See, this is different, different level of family. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. This is really interesting. This is so creative, the way that John is talking about. When you read verse 13, children born, he's talking about us. When you come into a relationship with God, when you open your heart to Jesus Christ, he says, this is your description. You become these children born again, right? Not of natural descent. Yeah, you don't actually come out of your mother's womb again, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. These are the exact descriptions, the way that Matthew and Luke describe the unnatural birth of Jesus, that it was not out of Mary and Joseph's will, but out of the will of God. And so John just kind of flips it around and says, you know what happens? When you come into a relationship with God, when you're born again, it's like you have your own nativity. You experience your own incarnation of Christ coming to you. You're not literally born again, but you're spiritually reborn through the love and the will and the righteousness of Christ. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Just love that. So John wraps it up. Verse 14. The word became flesh. Just in case you didn't know, he was talking about Jesus, right? It says, verse 4, the word became flesh. Who's that? That's Jesus. 
God in the flesh, and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And John is saying this, that the reason that you and I can actually put our hope and faith in Jesus Christ is because himself, along with the other disciples, and the, and the gospel talk about the 500 or so others, that they actually witnessed not only the death, they saw his body, but they also witnessed the resurrection. They met Jesus after he was raised from the dead on the third day. That has been verified, it's been documented, it was personally witnessed that the author of life overcame death so that we might live in the newness of life. Jesus did it all. Jesus did everything to win our affection, our life, our love. Jesus did it all. Believing, believing, having faith receives it all. Now, for, for those of you who've, who, who know this message and you've already responded to this message, right? Since you know, you know God's intent is still intact for you. Hopefully you received that, right? What you need to do this Christmas and for the remaining time we have in our Advent season is to ask yourself, where, where has it been difficult to recognize and to receive that God, that God's intent is still intact for someone else or in another situation? Let me say that one more time. Again, for those of you who respond to this message and know that God's, and understand that God's intent for you is still intact, still loves you, still welcomes you, still restores you. Where has it been difficult in your life to recognize and receive that God's good intent is still good, is still intact for another? Maybe it's a boss, say God couldn't love that boss. Coworker, God couldn't love that coworker. I mean, it's just they're really shady. The poor. Maybe some of you are youth, you look at your parents, like God just, God, my parents are just so far away from God. Mm -mm. A friend, an enemy, a frenemy, whatever it might be. And in this Advent season, would you find a way, would you find a way to bless because you know that God's intention is still intact for you? Would you find a way to bless a person or a situation where it has been so difficult for you to recognize and to receive that Jesus still has his original attention for them. For those of you who have never asked Jesus into your life, who've never taken that moment, that step to say, I believe, I believe, I believe. This Christmas, then why not receive? Why not receive forgiveness? Why not be restored to your heavenly Father who loves you, who has proven and demonstrated he would go to any and all lengths. He didn't just come out and say, hey, I love you, and you're all forgiven. It's all good. No, he demonstrated his love. Did he want to do it? No. He had to do it. He needed to do it to save you. Why not respond? Why not come back to your heavenly Father this Christmas? Let's bow our heads.